you go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 13 this morning. Let me read it and then we'll walk through it together. Paul writes, he says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that at one time uh, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're welcome. So <clears throat> what we see in this passage is this amazing thing. Okay? In, in 2, 1 through 10, especially 2, 1 through 3, chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul described in broad, general terms the experience of every person that has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. Did you recognize that? When we went through this section in chapter 2, he said, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking about shared, general experience. This is everyone's experience that has ever come to faith anywhere. You were dead. You were separated from God. You liked it that way. And God moved in verse 4 in mercy and kindness to redeem you, to save you. He was moving in terms of the general, in terms of the, effectively the nonspecific. Now what he does here, in, in starting at 11, going all the way through 22, ultimately he's trying to show how the gospel is able to unite radically different people. Now he's talking in terms of the Jew and the Gentile, people who found themselves oftentimes opposed to one another. Culturally, physically, I mean, they were just opposed to one another. They had a difficult time making church work in these, these first few generations of church because of, largely because of their backgrounds. And what he's drawing on and making this distinction in verse 11 all the way through verse 22 is that through the gospel, God unites all people. Through the gospel, God unites all people. But where he starts is, is this, this turn and sharp focus directed at the Gentiles, directed at these Gentiles, these Greek background believers. And look at how he turns to them. He says, you, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Now, when he's going to this, and what he's calling on them to remember is not their former way of life so that they'd look at it and say, you know what, I did this in my former way of life. I was a liar, I was a cheat, I was a murderer, so that every morning they wake up, they'll be wrecked, they'll be destroyed thinking on their former way of existence. Sadly, for too many Christians, this is where they are. When, when they stop and they reflect on their former way of existence before they came to faith, this is where they are. They are just destroyed, they are wrecked, and they look at it and they say, I've wasted so much time, I've wasted so much opportunity, and, and they're just wrecked. They can't move past that. They're dealing with, with the sorrow of, of a life that could have been. They're dealing with the consequences of the actions that they made in the past. And they, 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 they look at it, they focus on what happened to them in the past, and they're just stuck in that. They're stuck in that, and they struggle with the way their lives used to be. He is not calling on them to remember their former way of life for the purpose of, of pain and misery in their lives. Quite simply, Paul isn't going to them and saying, group of Ephesians, they're just too happy about life. They're just too happy about their circumstances. Let me come in and wreck it for them. Let me remind them how truly terrible they used to be, and then call on them daily to remember that. You know, he's not writing to Jason and Sarah and saying, every morning I want you to wake up and remember how you used to kick cats ritually when you were five years old. 
That's just not what he's doing. He's not calling on them and, and going to Ben and saying, I want you to remember how you used to rob banks. I want you to dwell. I want you to dwell on the pain and the sorrow you caused those people. He's not going to the adulterer and saying, I want you to remember how you wrecked the lives of everybody you ever came into contact with. And I want you to be stuck and wallowing in that sorrow. He's not doing it. But he is calling on them to offer reflection. He's calling on them to remember the plight of their past situation in such a way as to magnify their current situation. And we're going to see that as we walk through. He says, therefore, remember, think about your your former situation, how you Gentiles in the flesh. And he goes on. He says, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He says, remember that there was a time when you were alienated. You've got Jews, you've got Gentiles, and the Jews looked at the Gentiles, and they derisively referred to them as the uncircumcision. They derisively, they, they, they used these terms in a sarcastic and hateful manner. They called them what they didn't have, right? You get that, okay? You pick up on that? Europe, this is a radically different sermon. And so he's going through, and he's talking to them, and he says, remember that people used to ridicule you. They called you this name. And the name stood for your opposition. It stood for the fact that you were outside of this people of God. And the people that called you that, the people that called you that, they prided themselves on their physical characteristic. They prided themselves on this thing that's written about in Genesis 17. Genesis 17, we read about Abram. And God is going through, and you'll recognize that in Genesis 12, God has called Abram, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. And he's, he's working to establish this covenant with Abram. But we get into verse 17, into chapter 17, and it really is, is particularized a lot more. Flip over to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, he says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I, may take, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God goes through and he establishes this covenant with Abram. And he, he effectively changes his name to Abraham. And the sign of that covenant, the physical characteristic and sign of that covenant was circumcision. At 99 years young, brother was circumcised. That gets awkward real fast. And so at 99 years young, he was circumcised. And this was a physical sign of this relationship, this agreement between he and God. God was going to do his part and uphold it. And all the generations following Abraham would follow, all males would follow in this physical manifestation of this spiritual agreement, the spiritual arrangement. But at some point, they begin to forget something. At some point, there were those in this group that prided themselves on this physical characteristic. They prided themselves on this manifestation of the physical. And they derisively looked at all those who didn't have it, who didn't share it, who didn't have this physical marker of the covenant, and they pejoratively referred to them as the uncircumcision. Now look what Paul says here. Look what Paul says here. Paul's not holding this up and saying that Jews are better than Gentiles. He's not holding this up and saying they're right in the way they refer to you. He holds this up and look at what he says. He says, circumcision made by hands. Made by hands. 
Now, what he's talking about there isn't the process whereby a doctor goes in or a moil goes in and does this. That's not where he's going. For those of you who thought this was going to be a how-to this morning, I'm very, very sorry. What he's talking about, you can laugh, it's okay. What he's talking about in this is the, the, uh, effectively the inferiority of that thing. The inferiority of that thing. He says that it is just made by hands. This is something that is man-made. This is something man is doing. This thing alone does not identify you with the people of God. This thing and this thing alone doesn't do it. It's not what identifies them with the people of God. Flip over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. Moses writes and he says, And the Lord your God will do what? He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. For what purpose? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God is not calling on them to display something physical only. But he's calling on them to display a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is the heart that has been transformed. This heart that has changed. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, we read that God wants to come in and he wants you to quit being so stubborn. And he calls on them to circumcise their own hearts. Quit being so stubborn. Quit being set against God and set in your own ways. Quit trying to advance your own agenda and follow God. God would have your heart line up with any physical characteristic. What we read here is they prided themselves on the physical giving no attention to the spiritual. Do you catch that? They prided themselves on the physical, giving no attention to the spiritual. So Paul goes in, and effectively he is establishing to the Gentiles, he said, look, it wasn't this physical characteristic that was working against you. It wasn't this physical characteristic that was working against you. It was your positional placement before God. He shows us five ways that positionally they were set apart from God. Look here in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. He hits them, boom, big time, right off the bat. He establishes right off the bat the the main predicament with the Gentile. They were separated from from Christ. Now the Jew looked towards the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as this, this great conquering hero, this, this warrior, this one who would come and establish and set all things right. Right? So that's when Jesus came in and he didn't come and rally an army and take down the Romans. There were people that were dismayed. There were people that were upset. They wanted to know why he was doing it this way, why he was focused more on the interior than the exterior, why he was focused more on the heart than the outward manifestation in the flesh. They were frustrated with Jesus. Paul comes to the Gentiles. He says, recognize this. Remember this. You were separated from the hope of the Messiah. You might look at that and say, well, friend, that is obvious. I'm sorry, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but everybody that's lost is separated from Jesus. But look what Paul's calling on here. He's not just giving giving the state of affairs and the passing life of an individual. He is calling on Christians to remember that they were separated from Christ. He's calling on Christians to recognize that they were separated from Christ. And some of you, if I were to say, do you remember when you were separated from Christ? You'd say, yeah. i say, what was that like? And you're like, well, you know. But this is the reality. 
that to be separated from Christ means that you forego all of the blessings listed in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Look back on this mirrored column in chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Blessed be God our Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done what? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us where? In Jesus before the foundations of the world. Every blessing that comes the way of the Christian is found in Jesus Christ. There is no blessing in the life of the Christian that is not firmly implanted in Jesus. Every blessing in your life outside of those given to you by Jesus Christ is pales in comparison to the blessings you receive at the hand of God from Jesus. Do you catch that? And so when Paul writes to him and says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, you had no blessing in God because of your separation from Jesus Christ. Now this is even stressed by the way that Paul writes this. Paul writes it in such a way as to say, remember, like contemplate on this, think about this. You were positionally, all the time you were lost, separated from Jesus Christ. You were positionally all that time separated from Jesus Christ. And so it's not that you, know, you had a month where you weren't with Jesus and then you had Jesus for a little while and then you had a month where you weren't with Jesus and then you got Jesus back again. No, your former way of life, you were always, always, each and every day and every moment and every second without separated from Christ. All these blessings that you now enjoy were not yours. They were held away from you because you were separated from Jesus Christ. For those of us who have yet to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we recognize that today you are separated from the blessings and the provision of Jesus Christ. The only way to receive these blessings is to submit yourself to him and to receive them. You can't work yourself there. You can't will yourself there. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. And he goes on, and look, these two things in particular. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. And so he hits them on kind of both of these things for what it would be like to be in, in Jewish life. One, they were alienated from the commonwealth, from the way of life of Israel. Now, as, as you kind of particularize it in your own situation, you're like, well, you know, I've never lived in Israel. I never even knew many Jewish people. I don't really understand how this works out for me. But to them, they got it, right? And so they remember, I was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They derided me. They referred to me as names. I wasn't allowed into the temple. I couldn't offer sacrifices. I was set out, set apart, kept away from the people of God. I didn't have access to the scriptures. I didn't have access to the temple culture. I didn't have access to the sacrifices. I didn't have this insulating effect that the nation offers. You know, I was thinking through this, and in a very real sense, this is absolutely true of the Christian thinking retrospectively upon their former way of life. The church, when it's functioning well, does this very, very nicely. If the church is ultimately the bride of Christ, it is working to nurture, it is working to care for all those inside of it. It's working to lift up the brokenhearted. It's working to bind up wounds. It's, it's working at being restorative in marital relationships that are on the rocks. It's working to, to hurt and to ache along those who are sick or sad or have loss. 
It's working to be this, this kind of racial uniter, to work against you know, uh, people of one race and people of another. It's working to bring all people together. Why? Because all are one in Jesus Christ. And the church is seeking to model themselves after that. The church is seeking to pour themselves out and, and give of their time and their energies, seeking to be this with full intensity and full devotion. He says, remember at one time you were alienated. Remember at one time you were outside of the church. For many of you, the church has been this, this, this friendly, kind, and many churches seek to be this. They seek to be this kind of, this, this, this kind endeavor. And we, when we planted a church in Prague, this is what we sought to be. We wanted to go into the communities. We would pick up trash and we would just love on people that were on the streets. And we wanted to show the love of Jesus to everybody that we came into contact with. But we showed them this because of the love of Christ that already existed inside of us. And we couldn't allow them to totally feel this and to understand this because until they identify with Jesus and surrender their lives to him, all they can do is stand outside the window and look look in wantingly. All they can do is stand inside and want to experience the warmth, the embrace, the sense of unity and belonging. This is what he says. Remember at one time you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He says you were strangers to the covenant of promise. You didn't know that something better was coming. You didn't know that something better was coming. You didn't understand. You didn't have this idea, this, this thing that, that life was going to get radically better for you. That things didn't have to be this way for you. You were strangers. You're just kind of lost in the land, wandering around. You had no map because you were outside of this covenant of people. You didn't have a map. You didn't have a guide. But still, God reached you. Look what he says next. He says, remember that you had no hope. To the Gentile believer, he went to them and he says, remember that you had no hope. Now, some of you are under the, the mistaken assumption that if you were to engage in, evan- in evangelistic conversations with a lost person and you were to begin and walk up to them and say, uh, Christine, you have no hope, she'd say, oh, you nailed me! Oh, oh, you totally got me! I've got no hope! Please show me how I can have hope! And then Christine would say, sucker, I got you! Right? So Valerie and I, uh, we're ministering in, in Prague, 99% atheist. 99% atheist. We were the extremely odd ones. We believed that there was a God. I, I talked to him uh, frequently. And so we were the ones that enter into, to enter into conversation. People said, you're strange. And we didn't encounter people on the street and, and come up to them and say, I got, I got hope for you. I can pour out hope for you. And they say, I don't particularly feel all that hopeless. I don't particularly feel all that hopeless. I feel, I feel pretty good. Got a good job. Got a good looking girl. Got an even better looking girl on the side. I don't particularly feel all that hopeless. What he's describing here is only seen retrospectively. What he's describing here is this thing that you can never communicate to a lost person. For a Christian, reflecting back on what life was like before Jesus, they are able to recognize the plight of their past position. 
They're able to to look back and recognize, as we've read in here, that the wrath of God was hanging over them, that it was coming towards them, that they have been saved from that. They recognize that everything they did, every endeavor they gave themselves to, outside of submission to Jesus Christ, was ultimately empty. Every charitable uh, event that they gave themselves to, every good thing that they ever did, all of these things, all of their family, all of their work, all of their intellect, all of their physical prowess, all of these things were empty. They had no hope. They don't get this. They don't get this. You and I, we didn't get this until we were saved. It's only after coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ that one is able to look backwards and recognize the hopelessness of our past life, recognizing this hanging wrath of God over our lives, and recognize that we're all trying to make our own way, make our own salvation, but that God was showing us that there was another way. Now, interestingly for them, he writes, he says, look, you, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Now, for the Gentile reading this in in the first century, I'm sure they would hear this and and think just for a second, you know what, we had gods for everything. I don't know what you mean. What do you mean without God in the world? Man, we had gods for everything. I had the the God of foot aches, the God of knee aches. I had had this Roman God. I had a Greek God. I had a God for everything. I had a God in, in my own conception of things. They had gods for everything to cover every situation or need and so when he goes to them and he says this they were without god in the world what he is pointing at isn't their inability to to call down and 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 get through this this vast list of gods and find out which one is superior to the others what he's saying to them is even in your multiplicity of gods you were in fact without the one true god and we don't find very many people today that, that uphold some, some type of Roman mythology or Greek mythology or Norse mythology, if you're so inclined. Nobody's praying towards Valhalla, right? Nobody's asking uh, Thor or Loki to come and do something for them, right? If you are, this is a radically interesting lunch that you and I might be able to have today. Today, people pursue gods in a variety of of different ways and under different names. It's the God of personal success. It's the God of family. It's the God of retirement. It's the God of intellect. It's the God of, you know what, I just really don't care. It's the God of apathy. They have made that thing the, the most utmost in the key descriptor and modifier in their life. Some of them are incredibly good people. People to where if you were to compare yourself on a list of characteristics, you'd say, I really wish I could be more like this man or this woman. But this is the reality of their plight. They are without God. The Gentile reflecting on their former way of life recognized that he had hope and it was false. He recognized he had God's aplenty and they were empty. Until he came to know the one true God. Paul says that the Christian reflecting back upon their former life should be effectively so thankful that that is no longer their lot. So thankful that that is no longer their plight. So thankful and humbled 
that that is no longer true of them. Because look what he says here. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, the amazing thing is, Paul calls on them to reflect on individual perspective. In 2, 1 through 3, he threw open the gates wide and he said, you were dead, you were made alive, right? And so he goes to this kind of generic and general terminology. But here, here in 2, 11 and 12, he goes after the Gentile in particular. He says, this is who you were. This is the way in which you were lost. This is the way in which you lived your life. Now, this is the amazing thing. God, God goes to each of us in our own individual expression of lostness, your own style of lostness, your own degree of perversion, your own degree of idolatry, your own degree of atheism, your own degree of separation from him. He goes to you in your own individual expression of this. And what the text tells us here is he brings you near. There is no degree to which you can run from the cross of Jesus Christ that his grace is unable to draw you back from. This is what we see here. He says, but now, recognize you were lost. This is how you were lost. You were lost, but now, you who were once far off, separated. He's not painting the picture that, you know, you were pretty good people. You did a lot of good things there in Ephesus. You were so close to being saved. No, there is saved and unsaved. There is no progression by which someone becomes saved, right? There is a progression by which somebody comes to it and they submit to Jesus. But there is no stepping stone, road to walk, whereby that from point nine to point 10, it is an easier leap. The leap is only accomplished overcome by the blood of Christ. This is what he says. Remember at one time you who were far off. So he goes to Kelly and Lacey. He says, remember you too at one time. You were far off. You were good people. Everybody loved you, but you were lost and you were going to hell. Lacey looks at Kelly and says, of course he was. (laughs) The amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is you can go to somebody no matter how terrible they are, no matter how checkered their past, and you can say, the love of God comes near to you in the person of Jesus Christ, and it bids you come. The general way Paul described this in verse four, after already telling them that they were dead in their trespasses, he goes to them in verse four of chapter two. And he says, but being rich in mercy because of his great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. That God, even when you were dead, has made you alive. The way that he describes the individual perspective and experience of the Christian here is that even when you were far off, even when you were radically set apart and opposed to God, even in the midst of that, God came to you And he brought you near. You have been brought near. And look what he says here. It is by the blood of Christ. You and I, as we reflect upon the goodness, the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the benevolent provision of God the Father in sending the Son, when we reflect on that in light of our former way of existence, it produces this tremendous sense of, of joy and of humility. 
It's not that we get hung up on our past way of life and we beat ourselves up over it constantly, but we recognize as far away as we were, God overcame it in the blood of Jesus. Can I tell you that as far away as some of you are this morning who have yet to surrender your lives to Jesus, that gap, that distance, that length can be overcome by the blood of Jesus. This is the amazing thing that our God has done. He has seen fit to populate the church with formerly dead people. He has seen fit to populate his church, which he gave Jesus to, with people who are formerly far off. You know why? Do you know why God didn't go around and, and look for perfect people? You know why? And so that formerly far off people, formerly dead people, might be able to go to other lost people and say, man, I have been there. I recognize your lot. I recognize the plight of your life. And can I tell you, can I tell you when God found me in that gutter? Can I tell you when God found me in this affair? Can I, can I tell you when God found me in this obsession? Can I tell you when God found me in the midst of my lostness and by his love, he compelled me to come near? Can I tell you of that release and that experience? And can I tell you that there is a God who loves you even as far off as you think you are? And he longs to bring you near by the power of his blood. A church with that type of heartbeat is a church that honors God and a church that reflects Jesus. Let me pray for us.